0: Hi! It's been so long since I've gotten to post an episode that I feel like saying welcome back, though in truth I suppose that what I'm really doing is welcoming myself back to your MP3 player after a long absence. In any case, the summer has finally arrived. The semester is over, and June is here, with the delightful prospect of a whole semester sabbatical at the end of it. I'm now hard at work writing my Hobbit book. This means, by the way, that I am also working on finishing the Hobbit lecture series at long last. New episodes should be coming out soon, and the series should finally be completed. Tweet well before the end of the summer. I also, of course, have a long backlog of fairy and fantasy classes and Silmarillion seminars to send your way, about 40 episodes altogether. So as not to flood you all at once, my plan is to try to get into a pattern of releasing about three episodes a week for the foreseeable future. This should give you plenty of listening material for the rest of the summer, and I also hope to do a few Skype sessions and Q&A discussions at various points to add to the mix. In the meantime, we return at long last to the Silmarillion seminar. This is the fifth episode, which the seminar participants decided should be called Marrying Up. Okay, well I think we can uh, I think we can get started here. Um here, Joe, we'll go over to you. Alrighty. Um
1: well to start, kind of, the second paragraph, which is where I started talking about Melkor, mentions nothing about Balrogs having wings. That being <laughs> said, um, <laughs> it also later says that Melkor started breeding um, other monsters. And I wondered if that could be the start of him pouring his powers into worldly things, which is the beginning of him being restricted physical form. And also, I was wondering, who is mightier? The Balrogs or Sauron? I'm pretty sure it's Sauron, but I wasn't really sure where the line was drawn or how big of a difference there was.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's a great question, and we don't ever really see that. I mean, you're right. There certainly is um, the sense S- Sauron's given authority. Um, you know, he is named Morgoth's lieutenant, and he, you know, he's in charge of Angband and everything. We don't see that being true of the Balrogs, so it does seem that Sauron is a little a little bit higher up than them, but not that much. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Um, Certainly, you know when we get to the Lord of the Rings and meet the and meet the Balrog in Moria, this is what uh, this is what Legolas emphasizes when he's reporting this to uh, to to Goadrio and Celebron. You know, he says, you know, that it, it was a Balrog of Morgoth, of all Elf bane's, the most deadly, save he that sits in the Dark Tower. So um, that's uh, so so yeah, Sauron is given the 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 nod there, but not by. Um, not by leaps and bounds. Um, And, uh, let's see, Joemis, oh, oh yes, uh, Morgoth and Er, Melkor, as he is still named, uh, and his power. The other passage I would want to connect with that um, is the one towards the end, when it talks about the orcs. Um, Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Hmm. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, this is on page 50. Um, on page 50, when, uh, it talks about the corruption of the elves into, into the orcs. Um, yet, it, yet this is held true by the wise of Erasea, that all those of the Quendi who came into the hands of Melkor, ere Utumno was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs in envy and mockery of the elves of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes, for the orcs had life, and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar, and not that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainulindalë before the beginning. So say the wise. Um, and I just want to, I wanted to, uh, to read that in connection, Joe, with the passage that you mentioned at the beginning, because it does talk about Melkor breeding many other monsters of diverse shapes and kinds that long troubled the world. And it, it could sort of, especially since we're just coming from Ale and Yovana last time, it could sort of sound like these are sort of Melkor's kind of versions of the dwarves. Um, uh you know that these are these are you know these monsters are his own creatures um or even like the equivalent of you know the the the, the eagles or the ants um that uh, Manwe and Yavanna are singing about but it seems not uh the, there's that emphasis that he can't ha- make anything that has life of its own nor nor the semblance of life even um that this is just a restriction Melkor is less he is less creative now than he was. Um, that, is a, that is a consequence of his rebellion. Um, so when he's breeding monsters, they are they are they're things that he's twisting, things that he's corrupting. Go ahead, Joe.
1: Now, I was just going to say, um, I know we so- sort of mentioned how uh, the Ents or somehow we mentioned spirits or almost other uh, Valar or Maya or could have been, uh, or Ainur, I should say, it could have been summoned into other things in that world. Um, is, is that part of what uh, Melkor is doing here, summoning um, other of those spirits, or is he just twisting what's already there?
0: Well, I think some of both. I mean, I think that some of these are great beasts that he is twisting, um, so that they don't really have, you know, a kind of conscious awareness, but they are, um, but they're sort of made into into monsters. There was a, an allusion to that earlier on in the um, in in chapter one. Um, but we, and we will see when, when we meet the first dragon in which there is clearly a living spirit, uh, in the dragons, um, that will make reference to what seems pretty clearly to be, uh, as you say, Joe, a spirit, uh, some sort of Maiar spirit who's coming in to inhabit, uh, that, that particular shape. Um, let's see, Nick, I think you wanted to talk about, uh, you wanted to jump in on the Balrogs question or the Balrogs issue. Um, yeah, just a con-
2: confusion on the description of the Balrogs. Uh, they're described as corrupted Maiar. Um, Sauron is, is also one of the Maiar, but he's given a distinct and unique personality and form, whereas the Balrogs is just described in this generic way that they're cloaked in darkness, they have hearts of fire, and they have, um, flame
0: whips, um, but it's very generic with the Balrogs, and I was just confused uh, as to why. You mean why they're all so similar in particular, like why they seem to be just this group and not to have any individuality?
3: Yeah, whereas all the other Maya that I've read about
2: have distinct personalities, and this, the Balrogs are kind of lumped into a,
4: a generic group.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's a great point. Um, that it's not something I'd really thought about before, but I think that that's a really good point. Um, we don't, see even though we hear about, you know, the the people of the other Mayar, uh, of the other Valar, and everything. You know, we know there are other sort of groups among among the Mayar who are all sort of associated or or you know have things in common with each other. We don't really see. Of course, we don't see much of them. Um, that is the good ones. But we certainly don't see this sort of... I mean, the Balrogs sound almost like a species, right? Because they're all sort of so similar to each other. But I wonder if that isn't a reflection of what we see in Melkor's music in the Ainu You will we'll remember that um, the the discord, the theme that Melkor raises is loud and vain. You know, it's like many trumpets uh, 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 braying on a single note. Um, you know, they, they it's a it's a harsh unison uh instead of the complex harmony that Iluvatar made that seems to be the pattern of evil so um so i guess it's kind of not surprising that conformity and uh, and and sameness and that kind of a lack of individuality would um, would be associated with with evil characters and with uh, with his with these mire that he has corrupted and i think that that's an that, that's an interesting um point there as well, uh, that they became like him in corruption. He says he gathered his demons about him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's, um, they became most like him. Uh, yeah, yeah. We could see them being, um, them being corrupted in, in, in similar ways. Um, Let's see. Um, Let's see, I'm trying to pick through the uh, proposed topics here and see if we can uh, string things together that are kind of related here. Um, yeah, see, Dusty, I think you had a, a comment related to this discussion about the uniformity of the Balrogs here.
1: Only just that none of the good my were
2: really brought out, but one or just a very, very few. And there's an assumption that there was many
5: of them as well. They were probably cookie-cutter the same as the Balrogs.
0: Well, maybe, but see, we don't know. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's, it's it, That's exactly what makes it difficult to draw conclusions about this. Since we never really meet very many of the Maiar, those we do meet tend to be very individual. You know, we, we, we get these very individual characters, whether it be uh, like the, the Astari that we meet later on, or Melian, whom we uh, are introduced to in today's reading, or Ase and Uinen, who both have quite strong personalities. All of the good Maiar that we meet do um do have uh are 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 pretty individual, but yeah, I mean we don't know. I mean, is there a whole bunch? Is there like a large cohort of of you know sort of undifferentiated servants of Manway and Varda? We don't really know. I mean, it could be, and that's why they're not mentioned. But uh, but uh, but I'm really not sure. Um, you know, let's see, Matt, you wanted to comment on the Balrogs Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, it just seems to me that
6: uh, while the Balrogs are quite powerful and have much ability to make mayhem, they don't seem to uh, participate in in any kind of planning of any deeds. They just, uh, you know, they show up to, to do uh, their mayhem, and and they just don't seem to be in, in a controlling way, although they may be very powerful.
0: Yeah, I agree. Certainly with the way they're described here and the way we see them acting later on, they seem to be primarily like very heavyweight thugs, basically. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that certainly would be the primary difference between how we see Sauron acting and how we see them acting. I mean, they are definitely like the enforcers, but he, uh, he Sauron, um, definitely has a little bit we we see him using his intellect more. I don't know that Balrogs have no intellect, but they are. They I agree. They certainly are just described as bruisers, basically. Yeah, I mean, even when we we go to the Lord of the Rings,
6: it and they're in Moria. But I he, I, I don't get the real sense that they're directing things in Moria. Uh, he's there, and he's certainly something to be uh, feared. But I don't I don't get the impression that he's uh, directing any of the activities of the orcs in, uh, in Moria.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. There's no clear sense that he's like hatching long-term schemes and, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, there's, there doesn't seem to be any planning going on there. Um, you know, that he, he was disturbed from his rest by the dwarves. And so, you know, he came out and pounded on the dwarves because there they were. But then he doesn't seem to have left. He doesn't seem to be doing anything. Um, he's been down there for a long time since the dwarves left. And he's not, you know, seemed to come out or have any plans to do anything. So, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, we don't really see them acting like that. I I, I think it's a really good example. Let's see. John you had a Sauron question.
3: Um yes I was just curious. We know of course of the uh, the Hunter of Utumno the uh, the black rider per se of the first age who captures the elves and you know we, we hear a little bit about about it. I was just curious if Sauron took inspiration
0: for um, the Nazgûl on horses basically from the original hunter. Yeah it it, it, it is an interesting echo. Um, Certainly, with the uh, the the Black Rider stalking around. I mean, the the figure that we get, you know, the idea that we get there in in this chapter in the Silmarillion is a little bit more, well, sort of literally mythic. I mean, it's sort of part of the early mythology of the elves. Um, and and I like I like the fact that, uh, um, I like the fact that uh, I like the fact that Tolkien is not even really quite clear about, um, whether or not there really was one, you know, that like, maybe it, maybe it existed, maybe it was just a lie that was spread around, you know, there's this sort of hint at it, um, you know, that, um, that, that, that maybe it was real, that, that there are these songs, these old songs, um, uh, that, that tell of the, of, of this writer. But, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's sort of a direct anticipation, um, and I don't know which inspired which, frankly, if they are connected. But uh, but certainly, I think that that it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a fun parallel. Um, yeah, it's sort of interesting that the 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 first intervention we see Melkor doing when he finds out about the elves, because he finds out about them first, he doesn't show up in positive guise trying to tempt them. Instead, what he does is he steps in. And tries to basically put a wedge in between them, a wedge of fear in between them and the Valar, um, and how he's anticipating that. You know, it's probably going to be if any if any of the Valar find them, it's going to be Oromë who finds them. So he uh, he sort of tries to uh, to to anticipate the arrival of Oromë by planting this fear in their minds, uh, fear of a of a solitary horseman. So, and and that I think is just a really kind of interesting. A really kind of interesting move. Um, let's see, uh, Jason, you had a you had a question about um, you had a question about the attack of the Valar on on Morgoth, I think, on Melkor.
4: Yes, uh, can you hear me? Okay, great. When the Valar decide to attack Melkor to protect the elves, there's a, a passage where. Uh, it states, Melkor met the onset of the Valar in the northwest of Middle-earth, and all that region was much broken. But the first victory of the hosts of the west was swift, and the servants of Melkor fled before them to Utumno. And I'm just wondering, who is in the hosts of the west? Um, you know, We know the elves are not part of it. Is this just the the Valar and the Maiar? Those are the only candidates. Uh, and if it, it is Valar and Maiar, what is Melkor thinking? Sending you know, if he has orcs at this point to send against them? I'm, I'm having a hard time visualizing what that conflict would look like if it's a sort of pitched battle or something like that. But if Melkor has his monsters and the people that he that he's been working on uh, in his fortress and how they would hope to stand against uh, the Valar and whatever Maiar they brought with them, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems to be. Um... I mean I agree
0: with you that the, the, the Valar and the and the Meyer seem to be pretty much the only candidates for the host. I mean, we know they have these people, you know, these this, this large groups of Meyer with them, which I think have to be. And I think by the way, it's said it's sort of worth uh worth kind of glancing at the overall pattern here. You know, we knew that there was there was a struggle, there was a sort of a war going on with Melkor way at the beginning prior to uh the down the the overthrow of the lamps, but here we get this very clear invasion and this is the first time we get we get this assault by the valar on melkor and then the second time it's going to happen at the end of the first age in the war of wrath and that time you've got the Ainur, you've got the the valar and the maiar and the elves come over with them this time and some of the some of the you know it's a, only a few but some of the men who are still there and still faithful they fight on the side of the valar too um
4: right at the, I was just going to mention at the end of the first age you get a lot more uh, descriptive language by Tolkien with the dragons flying around and the hosts of the elves. And it's easier for me to sort of visualize what that might have been like. But this one, you just have a few sentences, and I'm having a hard time trying to figure out how exactly that might have worked, this invasion.
0: Yeah, I mean, this one seems to be just kind of, you know, Ainur on Ainur, basically, this whole fight. Um, And it makes you kind of wonder, too – did Melkor have more people at the beginning? That is, you're right at the end in, in the War of Wrath. He, you know, his armies are primarily the orcs and um, the dragons and the balrogs and, um, you know, these these creatures that we see him working with and developing. Most of those, the balrogs are there, but uh, the 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 dragons are not yet there and the orcs. Have got to be in the very early, very early stages of research and development. I mean, you know, they they can't really be very far advanced. And as you say, it's not like they'd be any good against the Valar at this point. Um, so no, I think that we can see both a change and a widening of the of the overall um, of the overall picture um, that is uh, of the battles and and sort of what leading up to. I think this is sort of anticipating the third. Battle the, that is the one that is not yet to come, the battle which is at the end of the world, which gets alluded to uh, in this passage, um, with our, our, the constellation Orion, uh, who, which anticipates the end of the battle at the end of the world. We'll get another reference much later on uh, in the Akalabeth uh, about that battle at the end of the world, and we'll be able to see there too that that is going to be a sort of a more cosmic uh, you know, it, well, I don't know more cosmic, not necessarily right. In fact, if anything, it's sort of less so in that it's, it involves more, more mortal creatures. It seems on each side. Um, but as it sort of widens and spreads, uh, among all of the world from just the iron in this first battle to including the elves and the men and the orcs and the dragons in the second battle to including, it seems pretty much everybody, uh, in the final battle, which is to come as I think that that pattern is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I do think um, that, you know, thinking back into terms that we've used in previous weeks, I think one of the reasons we don't get much description of this battle is that first of all, no, you know, none of the elves were there, so they don't know about it um, and they don't have it to describe. But secondly, also one sort of wonders if perhaps this would have been a battle very readily describable by elves. That is, since this is just a pure, uh, you know, Ainur on Einor battle, um, there isn't much to say One, I mean apparently it has consequences in the physical world as as, as you pointed out but um, you know, these are not necessarily even creatures always in physical shape fighting against other creatures in physical shape. I think, um, so I think that there are you know aspects of this battle that would have been hard. The central image that we get, um, the one thing that we are sort of brought back to, is that final image of Tolke standing forth as champion of the Valar and challenging, uh, <laughs> challenging Melkor to wrestle, um, and casting him down on his face. So. Uh, So yeah, yeah, that's, um, um, but I agree we don't, we don't get too much. And I think that that's, you know, we should be remembering the sort of intrinsically, uh, uh, vague and metaphorical ways in which these early things are described. Um, let's see. Okay. Okay. Let's see, Dusty, you had a, you had a question about, uh, about Maiar that, that sort of raised by this, which seems sensible, but I think difficult. Go ahead.
2: Well, just the, what happens to the Maiar in that battle? Do they get locked up in Mandos' hall? Or can they actually physically be destroyed or dissipated like Saruman so- was? Or what actually happens to the ones that lost?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, Saruman is exactly what I was going to point to in that uh, we get um, there one of the only instances where we actually sort of, in one of the stories that Tolkien tells, we see a Maiar perish. Um, Though it's not even obvious that he perishes in the sense of, you know, achieving some kind of annihilation. His spirit rises up and is pushed away by the West Wind. So he's clearly been rejected or cast out. But even there, it's, it's, uh, it's not clear that his spirit is completely destroyed. Remember, even when Gandalf is talking about Sauron and what they're hoping for from the destruction of the ring is not Sauron's death, but rather that he's just going to become, you know, a weak and thin spirit haunting Haunting the countryside, you know. So he's still going to be around, um, but he's going to be he's going to be stripped of his power. Um, so it seems pretty clear that although in some cases Maiar can be inconvenienced by the death of their of their material manifestations, we will see this with Sauron when he goes down with the ship in Numenor. Um, yet, nevertheless, uh, that you know they can't be they can't be just sort of destroyed that way. Um so I don't know. I mean they can be they can be bound. They can be cast into outer darkness. That's what happens to Melkor there. Um but uh but yeah so I, I mean I think that um I, I mean this is all pretty unclear but uh, but yeah I think that we can see certainly they can be controlled, they can be banished, they can be um I think they can be imprisoned, but we're of course we're never really told about. We're told that Melkor is taken captive. We're not told about any of the rest of them, though they've been scattered into hiding. Um, presumably, I mean, I would guess, lest they be cast out with Melkor. But I, but uh, but yeah, we just really don't. Uh, we just really don't know. Let's see, Dave, go ahead. You wanted to pitch in. Sure, why not? Um, I mostly just wanted to point out
2: uh, uh, if you, were, if people recall at the end of *Lord of the Rings* when um, the rings destroyed, um, they talk about Sauron sort of dissipating into just a spirit of malice in the uh, wilderness. So, and if you you would think if anyone was ever going to die, it would be him after the ring gets destroyed, because I mean he put the lion's share of his power in there. Uh, But even that doesn't seem to take him out. It ends up being almost a fate worse than death, because he's still around, still lingering. um, And but he's powerless. He's you know I assume much like uh, Saruman, he's cast out of Valinor. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, um, it seems like they don't get destroyed. I wonder, on the other hand, the Balrogs, what happens with them? Uh, do they actually, because they've been defeated, destroyed in several occasions. Uh, what happened to them when they were, you know, when Gandalf threw down his foe um, and that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's a good question. I mean, Gandalf certainly seems to view that fight as having ended with a certain amount of finality. <laughs> uh um, and, and certainly, I mean, when you go back to, in the book of Lost Tales, in the book of Lost Tales, the original version of the fall of Gondolin, um, they're Balrogs killed all over the place. They must kill like 60, 80 Balrogs, um, during that battle. Um, that is the elves, uh, you know, the, the Ecthelion and Gorfindel and the, and, uh, and, and the other elves who are defending Gondolin, um. It's sort of an epic battle, and so I mean they're described. They, the Balrogs, that is, are described in much more kind of mortal terms, you know, as if they were monsters um, who could be killed, although with great difficulty uh, and only, you know, with great heroism. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what. To do with it, it seems to be something that Tolkien hasn't really, I mean, he certainly just really hasn't explained this, um, since they clearly are Maya, and yet they also seem to be bound, uh, they also seem to be bound to the world in the sense of sort of having killable bodies, bodies which obviously inconvenience them to be killed. Um, So, so... Yeah. Yeah. Not sure. Um, one wonders if perhaps in some sense they have been bound and dissipated, um, like Melkor, you know, Melkor will come to the place where he can no longer change his form, um, where he's going to be tied to his physical form, uh, much more closely as will Sauron. Um, because, and that as a consequence of his own, the dissipation, the dissipation of his own power, one wonders if perhaps the, the Balrogs are not, um, are not um in a similar kind of state.
2: Yeah, I, I well I wonder if, you know, um that, that maybe we have to maybe we have to be focus on the the sort of mind body dual spirit body dualism that Tolkien seems to enjoy. Um, <clears throat> that, that to the extent that this story is told within the confines of Arda, that you know for all intents and purposes, if they're killed, they're killed in Arda, but maybe their spirits don't nec- don't necessarily get destroyed. Um, the the interest. I mean, the the only thing that's interesting, and of course, this is going way off. Uh, into later parts of the book, but the only thing that's interesting with Sauron is that even when his body gets destroyed, it doesn't end his power in Arda. And maybe that's maybe he just has a – maybe he has greater stature um, than the Balrogs did and the spirits who became the Balrogs did. Or, you know, for all we know, they're still running around and they still have power in the world and it's, they're just not exercising it um, explicitly like they did when they were manifest spirits of flame and shadow um, and, and maybe this is maybe this is one of those cases where you can use the convenience of the fact that the frame of framework of Silmarillion is its stories told by the elves. So maybe what this is really evidence of is the fact that they just don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly well, a convenient I, excuse for dodging the question. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and, and the thing is, is, it's you know, it's it, it's one of the things that Tolkien did so brilliantly in so many of his fictions was to to create to create those kinds of outs that is and it's not just a not just a way of like dodging questions but but of of it's one of the things which gives his subcreated world the kind of authenticity that it has um is oh, because of course the real world is like that you know and real stories are like that and real historical records are like that where they're just they're not complete and we just don't know um and so you know we're not, you know it's like he doesn't you know the the of course the 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 terminology so often used of the omniscient narrator of a book well he, you know, if your if your narrator is actually omniscient, then you're setting yourself up for troubles. But uh, but he doesn't use in that sense literally omniscient narrators. They're 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 narrators who have a certain point of view and have a certain limitations of their knowledge. And uh, it creates, as is it, not only this sort of wonderful sense of authenticity to his stories, but uh, but also creates the situation where you know n- n- nobody nobody really can be expected to know all these things. And I think it's important. Uh, I think it's important to keep that in mind um mike you had uh, had something that you wanted to contribute about the um i think about the 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 dark rider at Quivienen. okay yeah well i mean i
3: just put a little exclamation point in the margin next to the sentence that describes the most ancient songs of the elves are associated with what seems to me like a nightmare shadow monster shapes devouring you out of the darkness. And I just, you know, I found that to be kind of a terrifying and terrible image in in and of itself. And also to think about the fact that these are the earliest memories of the elves just seems to me, uh, very frightening and, and traumatic. And I, I, that really didn't sink in the first time I had read this. And, you know, there are portions of the Silmarillion where there's sadness and loss or fear or monstrosity, but, uh, this was one that I had missed the first time around, but this time i i I flagged it as I was reading it, and I was just uh you know it's a it's sort of like this uh trauma that's the first subject of all their songs, and songs are so important to the elves it's uh sort of a really fascinating and interesting thing to think about i don't really know what it means about in terms of how you know how it formed the elves or formed them as a people, but definitely the the imagery is, to me, something out of a nightmare.
0: Yeah, and I do th- I th- I do I agree that that's really interesting. Though the, the one thing I would add to that is that it's one of the I mean, we we are told that it's it's in the earliest songs that they sing, but it's not their earliest memories. Their earliest memories is of the stars, of the light. Um, but that's immediately accompanied by this fear of the darkness. So we see sort of both sides, right? Um, their awareness of the darkness and the. The darkness gets invested with fear uh, right away by Melkor, um, and yet their first, you know, the, their what they see first when they awake uh, is the stars, um, and their the greatest reverence is given to Varda, the Kindler, um, who of course is primarily associated with light, um, and they are going to be they are going to be called the Eldar, which means the people of the stars. So, you know, so they're always associated with the stars and with that light, um, that with the light of Varda, which is, of course, who, who has, of course, the light of the face of Lubitar. Um, so, but, but yes, you're right. There is also that sort of, um, unformed and much more scary for being, uh, for being unformed and undetermined, uh, sort of nightmare of the dark rider, um, you know there is this very this very childlike sense of night terror there um with the big bad rider on his horse who's going to get you um and yeah it's it is uh fascinating
3: i think childlike is exactly right he's not only going to get you he's going to devour you
0: yeah 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 exactly um and uh yeah and that that and that it seems that 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 childlike fear was literally true for them um, and did at times come true. So um, I think that that's, yeah, it is a really evocative and very interesting moment. And again, I I keep coming back to how fascinating is Melkor's approach there. Um, You know, we have Quivianen, which is, you know, uh, like it is the first, it is the first place where they wake up so and then melkor comes and finds them and 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 one might expect perhaps a kind of garden of eden like experience for them um but they get not a tempter but a devourer
3: yeah and it's interesting that you should say wake up because now we're talking about the elves waking up from nightmares and night terrors it's just it's very interesting the way we're taking this discussion
0: yeah no i think i think it's very interesting i mean that the uh the, the the description of their awaking and the association of that awaking, as you point out, with these with these fears, as well as with the light and the reverence for the light, um, is I think really really evocative of of life in Middle Earth as 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 Tolkien is describing it here. Um, well, as we are kind of transitioning here into into the elves, um, we've had several texts. Requests here, very sensible ones, to review terminology, and by all means, let's do that because this is one of the first places we've survived the Valaquenta uh, and everything, and now we've gotten to the place where uh, Tolkien has started to give us the the famous different branches of the elves, um, and uh, and and let's kind of let's kind of go over these here before we get any further. So first, the elves call themselves the Quendi. That's the name they give to themselves, and that means those who speak with words. So they, 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 they call themselves the Quendi because they're the only ones that they've met who use language, like they've met animals, but they don't appear to talk, and so they, they, they call themselves like the talking ones. Now, when Arome meets them, he gives them a name in their language, which is Eldar, and that means the children of the stars. That's what he calls them. It's their language, but it's the name that he gives them. Now later on, now of course <clears throat> he's going to invite them all to come with him to Valinor, and this is so the and so this is the first division of the elves. Many of them choose to come with Orome, uh, and some of them stay behind and don't want to come. And those and so the the, the ones who don't want to come, those are called the Avari, which means the unwilling. They're, they are they are the unwilling to come, and. We never talk about them. We'll almost never talk about them again. Um, now, those the, those who come, the three kindreds who come with Oromë on the long march west, they are then called the Eldar. Although, uh, although the although Oromë gave that name, the Eldar to all of them, the, only those who actually came to Valinor to, to came to be known as the Eldar. So the Avari weren't sort of considered Eldar. That name wasn't used to apply to them. Um so that's the first division there between the Avari and the Eldar. Now, the Eldar are then divided divided into the three kindreds, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri. <clears throat> okay. Now that's kind of simple enough. Uh you've got you've got the the uh the light elves and the deep elves and the sea elves, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri respectively. Now, the Teleri gets sort of subdivided into three groups, okay? Um, because the Teleri are the largest group, and they're the ones who come behind. So some of the Teleri end up making it all the way over to Valinor, and those are still called Teleri. So the ones who are the ones who who remain, who who who, go, who, who get to Valinor, those are the ones who are still called the Teleri. But the subset of the Teleri who come all the way over, make it into Valerian, but don't cross the sea. Those are called the Sindar, and the Sindar are the ones who are going to be ruled over by Thingol. Um, and then there's another group of the Teleri who didn't even make it as far as Beleriand; they stayed on the other side of the Misty Mountains originally. And those are those are called the Nandor. Okay, so the Nandor, by the way, almost all of the elves that we meet in the elves who live in Mirkwood, uh, many of the elves uh, in in Lothlorien, those are Nandor actually. Um, not all of them, obviously, like, not Goadriel and Celeborn themselves, um, and also not Thranduil and his family. Thranduil is a Sindar, and Celeborn is a Sindar. Um, Goadriel, of course, is a Noldor. But, uh, anyway, um, so, so the, Tiler, the, the Nandor stay stay east of the Misty Mountains. The Sindar make it to Beleriand, but don't go over to Valinor. And the, the last subset of the Teleri who go, who go over the who are called the Teleri go over to Valinor. So the Teleri, the Noldor and the Vanyar end up in Valinor. Now the w- one other term that Tolkien introduces in this chapter, um, which he almost never will use again is the Ummanyar. Um, that is those, and that's the, basically the Sindar and the Nandor together. Um, who are the, the the elves of the Teleri who didn't go over. But anyway, you don't really have to worry about that one. He doesn't use that one very much. But another important... This is not exactly a subdivision, but it's sort of a a, a, a very important distinction among the elves, is the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi. The Calaquendi are the elves of the light, and the Moraquendi are the elves of the darkness. And basically that just means, did, did they go over to Valinor while the trees were in bloom? If... if, if, if all elves who were in valinor at the blooming of the trees are calaquendi and all elves who were not are not and this will be important later on because the elves the calaquendi are much greater than the moraquendi they are they are increased they are um, they are made greater by their um, by their time over there in valinor with the valar and under the trees. Um, yes, as Dusty says, Elf 2.0. They totally are Elf 2.0. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, let's see, so, uh, for clarifications, Dave asks, Thingol is Kalaquendi? Yes. Of, he's the only person who is both Sindar and Kalaquendi by a kind of, uh, by a kind of technicality since, uh, since Thingol, who was also called Elway, was one of the three ambassadors who were sent over, the three who became the lords of the three kingdoms, Ingwe and Finwe and Elway um, of the Vanyar, Noldor, and Teleri, respectively. They were the three ambassadors whom Orome brought back to Valinor to check it out and make sure that the place was nice. And they're like, yeah, okay, this is pretty sweet. Let's come over. Um, so Elway has been there. And so technically he is—he is um, he is... Calaquendi, but we know he doesn't go back because he has that whole Melian sidetrack, and then ends up staying uh, in Beleriand with Melian and ruling the Sindar. So he alone of the Sindar is a Calaquendi, and the rest of them are more Um uh, Luthien, however, note Luthien is Moraquendi, uh, because even though she kind of does go to Valinor in a way, it's post-trees, uh, so she is, she, so she's, she's quendi, but at the same time, she's also the daughter of Melian, uh, so she's special, uh, for that reason. And we can see, um... It will be important. I will want to come back to some of the descriptions that we get of Melian when we get to Baron and Luthien, uh, because we will see that Luthien takes after her mom in several important ways. Um, okay, let's see. I'm um, so not trying to review some of the questions about um, some of the questions about elves that people have asked. Um, let's see, Elizabeth, why don't you go ahead? You had a question about. Uh, about the finding of the elves i think
7: okay great yeah i'm on uh actually on page 48 um with the i guess the prophecy or the statements that mandos made where he says about uh it is the doom that the firstborn shall come in the darkness and shall look first upon the stars great light shall be for their waning to varda ever shall they call at need and it's that statement that great light shall be for their waning that i kind of have a question about um because to me, it implies that their fading will start when they come into the light, which I would guess would be when they come to Valinor in the light of the trees, which since that's when they have become Elf 2.0, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, right, right. It, I, it, I
0: was going to say, I actually think that the light he's referring to there is the sun and the moon. So that when it, he, when because it, he says that there's just going to be the stars, great light will be for their waning. Um, so when the sun and moon rise, that's sort of the sign that we're on the downward trend. Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure that that's what he's talking about, which, you know, is already itself kind of interesting because we'll see, you know, when the moon rises and then when the sun rises, that's still going to be fairly early on in this book. Um, and, and certainly way back in the first age of middle earth, um, you know, we think about the third age as the time of the elves waning and we see, we, we hear about them waning and they're leaving and, and everything else, but yet it's, it's already started. I mean, the, the, they've been fading ever since way back in the first age. Um, The, the decline has begun. And I think that that's, uh, that that's what he's, what he's referring to there. Okay. Let's see, Laura, you had a, an Avari question.
7: Yeah, I was just wondering what happened to the avari. Do we have any idea what happened to those elves that stayed behind in Aquivena? Uh,
0: Almost none. Um they'll get a couple scattered references. Some of them were made into orcs apparently. Some of them um when after men arise. We will hear sort of rumors that some of, that they met some of the Avarian were taught by them. So we, we get hints that they're still around, but, um, but no, we know very, very little about them. Um, we certainly get no stories concerning them. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, that is very, uh, uh, there's sort of a whole category of untold stories. There's this sort of sense that they will have, that they will have faded too, but that they're, um, that they're different. You know, one of the things I think to keep in mind here is the foundations kind of that Tolkien is building on. Um, remember that elves are fairies, you know, that's, that's the word that he used for them, uh, throughout the book of lost tales, for instance. Um, so, one of the things that he is doing is basically accommodating various different kinds of fairy stories. Um, that is, you know, if you read fairy stories, you know that there are some, there are like some fairies who are great and high and good and some fairies, which are sort of, uh, smaller in the sense of being sort of smaller scale and mischievous or actively wicked, uh, and corrupt. Um, and we see him sort of with this this whole category of avari out there that you know who knows but what they became you know these uh you know mischievous sprites that uh have you know have entered men's stories and men's mythologies in various ways. Um, he, uh, he loved to kind of accommodate, uh, traditional stories and mythologies in that way. Um, so the Avari, even though he doesn't ever tell their story, um, they become very sort of useful, very kind of applicable to, to many various things, but, but we never hear any stories of them. Um, but yes the the one thing we do know for sure, well, the two things we know for sure is that many of them became orcs, and that uh but that some of them are still around, so apparently there still is a a a culture of avari out there that we don't really know um that we don't really know what that what that looks like um, okay, let's see let's see, Laura, did you want to add something
7: um Sure, since you ask, <laughs> um, I, I was just uh reading that passage that says, in the beginning, the elder children of Iluvatar were g- stronger and greater than they have since become, but not more fair. Um, it just struck me that uh he says that they were stronger and greater um, at at the beginning. Does that mean that uh the elves are are fading through time that they're They're, in a sense, aging, uh, sort of like mortals, but not quite as fast, maybe?
0: Yeah, exactly. Though I think it doesn't seem to be quite like mortals in the sense of, uh, you know, it's not that I think an ancient and faded elf would look, you know, like a withered, white-haired, shrunken person or something. Um, But, yes, they do fade and grow less. I mean, this um, this is something that... You can hear hints of, though I think it's easy to misunderstand it. When uh, when they're talking, for instance, at the Council of Elrond, when they're talking about the Last Alliance and they're saying, you know, look, that that kind of thing could never happen again because the elves... Uh, you know the elves have diminished um it's pos- you know it 's easy to kind of misinterpret that as 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 meaning simply uh, there just aren 't so many uh, elves around anymore you know they 've been leaving and we couldn't near we couldn 't muster nearly the army that we used to be able to muster back uh, back then at the end of the second age um and yeah that 's probably true too, but there 's also that each the elves individually have <laughs> have diminished. Um even the ones who are still around who were there like Elrond and Cirdan who were both on the slopes of Mount Doom with gil and, and Elendil. They are not as powerful as they used to be. You know, they 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 wouldn't be able to do what they had done before. Um so yes, the elves are really fading and really diminishing. Um and uh with the avari it seems likely to have been a process that was
4: that was quicker. Um. Yeah. Yeah. See, Jason, go ahead. You wanted to add something. Yes. There's a passage later in the Silmarillion, and I don't remember which chapter it's in. But there's a statement about how something about how the the fire of the elves' spirit consumes them from within, gradually or over time. And I was wondering if you, that seems to relate to what Laura was just asking. I wonder if you remember where that passage is.
0: Hmm. No, not offhand.
4: Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find it.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's coming up soon. But, yeah, I can't remember right offhand exactly where it was. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that is that is the description of it. That is the, um, their their spirits burning like fire and the fire just kind of burning down as time goes on, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. Um Let's see, Jordan, go ahead.
6: Okay, because um, no discussion we would have would be complete without a discussion on free will. Um, I was, I find it odd that Arome, when it describes him finding the elves, it mentions twice very specifically that he does it by chance and that it's not part of a larger design. I was wondering why this particular instance is something that is so stressed that it was by random chance that he finds them.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that here we see the first instance of the uh, sort of a pattern of um, uh, a pattern of references that will happen throughout, um, throughout the Lord of the Rings. Certainly um, he, he finds them by chance. Um, and i think the emphasis there is that it's not his plan um i'm trying to find the exact phrasing i'm losing it do you have the same edition uh yeah, do, do you have do you have the same edition here that 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 we're using jordan so that you could actually read the sentence Ah, okay. Well, no, I found it. I found it. There it is. Um, and Arome wondered and sat silent, and it seemed to him that in the quiet of the land under the stars he heard afar off many voices singing. Thus it was that the Valar found at last, as it were by chance, those whom they had so long awaited. Um, as it were by chance, you say yes. That's exactly... Um, remember all the times in the Lord of the Rings that people say things like, if chance you call it, and things like that. Um, that is, we, we get... We can see two things, I think, going on there. One, that it is as if by chance. In other words, it is not by his plan. It is not part of his strategy. This is not, he does not find the elves because he is being a particularly good elf searcher or like some particular kind of, you know, uh, virtue in him. He um, just happens across them. But the emphasis, as it were, by chance, instead, I mean, it doesn't actually say that it was chance, because, of course, it seems unlikely to have been chance, that this was, in fact, a pre... A, a, an ordained meeting um, and something that it seems that Iluvatar has brought about. Um, Almost any time you see that those references to chance in the Lord of the Rings, I think that those are the places where we are, we are supposed to be hearing uh, that this is a providential moment, that this is a place where uh, the hand of Iluvatar is visible to those who can see it. Um, And I think that we can see that here. And it's interesting to see that the Valar are, operating within that as well. That to them, it appears like chance as well. Um, so yeah, this is, this is part of the story, part of the, the hand of Iluvatar at work as Manway saw the hand of Iluvatar entering into the world and operating within it. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, Dave, you might as well raise your, uh, you might as well raise your, your question about the coming of the elves into the West, because I think it's a, it's a good question and it's a big one. So we should definitely, we should definitely bring it up.
2: Sure. <clears throat> um, what was that question again? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was, I was struck by the, um, the discussion and disagreement between the um, Valar about summoning the elves into the West um you know one because reading it with foreknowledge of what happens later in the books it obviously leads to a lot of really bad stuff and well actually and he explicitly says that in there too um lots and lots of tragedy of course lots of wonderful things happen too and and since since uh one of the themes of the book is that uh tragedy is really you know the stuff of life maybe we we don't regret it so much but let's speculate anyway um, maybe summoning the elves into the West isn't such a good idea. Almo wasn't a big fan of it. Um, he thought that they should be allowed to just sort of wander around in Middle-earth and kind of do their own thing and make their own choices. And nobody forces them to come to the West, but um, I, wonder if I wonder if this is sort of a mistake on behalf of the Valar. Um, I wonder if this is them imposing their will on the uh, children a little too much.
0: I think it's a, it's, it's a great question. What do you guys think? Does anybody have any uh, any response to this? You know, the uh, second guessing of the Valar question here.
4: Surely, the history of Middle Earth would have been much less interesting if they hadn't gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, that, and that's one of the things that we will see. Even bad choices end up uh, doing uh, end up doing good through. Th- you know, there's the well. I won't quote it now because we'll get to it later. But there's the the reference of the, of you know the 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 stories that will come of it. Um, clearly, it is a blessing to the elves. I mean, there like what happens with the Calaquendi shows that they were very greatly blessed by it, um, and certainly they are dwelling in bliss. And you know, you have the land of Amon in general, and you know, Valinor in particular sort of established as this, you know, this land of, of perfect bliss and happiness and certainly inviting them to join them over there is, uh, is, you know, that seems perfectly fine. Um, yeah, as Jason points out in text here, it, it works for the Vanyar. They're, they are happy, you know, they're the only ones, the Teleri, not all of them go over there at first, you know, and the Noldor, well, they'll have uh, other issues as we'll see, but the Vanyar, you know, perfectly content, it appears. Um, Elizabeth, uh, why don't you go ahead and, and, uh, and, and say aloud what you just typed there. I think that that's an interesting point.
7: I. I always thought that it was a a bit of a disservice both to Middle-earth and to men that the the, uh, Valar basically abandoned. They brought the elves over and they basically abandoned Middle-earth in order to, I guess, have the elves. It seemed a little selfish to me of them and uh, let Middle-earth go to Melkor and um, really were a bit neglectful as a result of that to the coming of men. And men didn't benefit as a result from the exposure to the elves, and also from the exposure to the Valar that they might have had otherwise.
0: Yeah, no, and you know when we do hear from men, we 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 hear them talk about that on a couple of occasions where they're like, hey, you know, no no Valar came to us to invite us over to paradise. So, uh, you know, we just had to make shift for ourselves. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly Olmo's point sounds like a really good one. Um, you know, the Quendi should be left free to walk as they would in Middle-earth and with their gifts of skill to order all the lands and heal their hurts. So, you know, Olmo has, I think, a pretty compelling case to say, um, to say, yeah, you know, this this is what they were made for. You know, they've been given these gifts. They've been given these powers. They should be encouraged to use them. Um, and I think, Elizabeth, that the way that you put it is really good. It's not necessarily that bringing the elves over to Valinor was itself a bad idea, but there is a sense of, of this really kind of inward and isolated focus once they're over there, right? That the Valar take no more thought to middle earth. I remember Melkor's chained. I'm sure some of the, some of the bad guys have gotten away. Sauron is still loose and some of the Balrogs are still about, um, and presumably some of the monsters and things, but Melkor is chained. So why are they not going around more in middle earth? Why are they not healing the hurts of middle earth? It has been wounded. It has been corrupted. It has been twisted in parts and in ways by Morgoth. Um, but they're not. Instead, they're just hanging out with the elves over there in Valinor.
7: It, it's it almost feels to me like the the Valar coveted the Eldar, and it was it, there's almost a I don't know a, a sinful feeling to it to me.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's hard. It's it's hard to be. Um, it is hard to be sure. It's tough to make an accusation like that stick against the Valar, you know, because Tolkien is just and again, I think here we come to the to the the whole point of view question again. I mean the elves who are writing these things are not gonna say with any kind of clearness, yeah, boy, you know, the Valar really screwed it up here. Um, shame on you, Manway. Like they I mean the 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 passage with Aule and yuvana is the is the only place where we get a clear um a clear story of a non evil valar who screwed up and sinned um but even that of course shows us that that is certainly possible and they do they do screw up even even mandos's final proclamation um so it is doomed is kind of interesting and ambiguous um that does not necessarily mean yeah this was the right idea um but yep that was exactly what was going to happen
2: um, I was gonna I was gonna concur with Elizabeth to a degree. I, maybe it's impossible to speculate what might have been if they hadn't done it and, and and I don't know that I would argue it was a mistake in terms of consequence, but i'm a little I'm a little suspicious of their motives the same way elizabeth is i'm I'm not sure that they made the decision for necessarily the right reasons um, at least the the feelings i don't know if they were covetous or sinful, but they certainly it seemed reactionary. there was sort of this idea of uh you know almost said, you know they should be allowed to stay over there, be free, do what they're gonna do, and the reaction against that was sort of an attitude of Oh, but we're worried about them, and it's a big, bad world, and really, wouldn't they be better off just sort of sheltered and protected over here? Um, and and I wonder if sort of the, the, the chain of events that that sets in motion that eventually – well, some of them stay over there, but eventually a whole bunch of them go back, the Noldor, but – they don't go over there in necessarily the right attitude they don't they didn't they didn't decide you know uh, uh let's go back and fulfill our mission to bring light to the every corner of the earth and middle earth they go back in a spirit of rebellion they go back in a spirit of let's go set up um you know our own kingdoms let's conquer um they go back to fight uh and that certainly isn't nearly as a positive um spirit uh as you know hey let's Let's uh, share our gifts with the world.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that you can certainly see some kind of questionable motivations there. Joe, you wanted to pitch in?
1: Well, this is kind of in their defense. Um, One real reason that in the beginning it seemed they were excited about the elves was because it was a part of the mind of Iluvatar they have not seen before. This is the Valar. So, um, I mean, it, it doesn't really justify them, not really forcing them, but really insisting them coming. I mean, but they were just – they were kind of – don't want to get too touchy, but the love they had for Luvatar, they were like, oh, man, this is like a whole other part of Luvatar that we don't know. This would be really great to just get to know them. And, I mean, it would be like getting closer to Luvatar. And uh, I just think that's another side of it, even though all the other sides are completely right as well.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's really important to remember that their desire – it's not like it is – covetous in the sense of desiring something that they shouldn't have or something like that. They are motivated by love um, and their desire to be with the Eldar and to love them and to, and as you say, to, to, to see more of Luvatar through them. That's a really positive motivation. Now that doesn't change the fact that this might be a bad idea. Um, and it might, and one thing that we certainly see in Tolkien many times is the fact that positive motivations like this can lead you into trouble. Mike, you wanted to comment? All right.
3: I just wanted to I'll echo what you just said, and I think we're kind of dancing around this. The Valar have fallen in love with the beauty of the elves, and they want to be close to the elves, and it's easy for Omo to argue against that after Tolkien has said that Olmo can be all over middle earth, whenever he wants at all times. (laughs) And he can, he can, he loves the elves too. And he's always with them for the other Valar that they don't have that same power that Olmo does. So now that they fall in love, they need to bring the elves to where they
0: reside. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and there's, and, and, you know, on, on one level, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that is interesting. With Almo, like, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Yeah, Jordan, go ahead.
6: Uh, yeah, one more thing I was thinking about. Um, sort of back to the first chapter where Lubitar says nothing happens that doesn't make my plans greater. Um, in the very, very long scheme of things, does Morgoth, Melkor, get overthrown and destroyed and thrown to the void if the elves don't come to Valinor? Or, I mean doesn't this in fact like set that chain of events in motion.
0: Yeah, I mean it's certainly well, I mean the hardest the hardest and probably most fruitless game to play is the how would the story have happened if it had been completely different game. Um that's really difficult. Um but yes, I mean I certainly see what you mean. We can certainly see that um the bringing of the elves over to Valinor Is certainly a big part of the story that we are going to see unfolding. Um, Certainly it wouldn't have happened the same way. But yeah, I I mean, would Melkor not have been overthrown? No, I I can't think that he would have been not overthrown had the elves not been over there. Um, I mean, we will see uh, later on in a couple weeks the... You know, we'll talk about Melkor's specific reaction to the elves, uh, and I, I would rather kind of wait to talk about it then when we actually read about it. But um, um, certainly, I mean, he is reacting particularly to them, and so you know, there is some some very specific things there. But I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, no, yes, the story would have been different, um, but uh, I don't know. I'm tempted, of course, to quote my favorite line from *Leaf by Nickel* here. Right. Um, it would have been. It could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Um, but one thing I wanted to go back to, though, before we leave it behind, the point about um, the point about the love of the Valar for the Elves. Um, the parallel that I would point out, or rather that I would anticipate, um, we will see many times in the Silmarillion. Um, and this is, I think, arguably the first instance where a positive love. You know, a love for something which is genuinely lovable and, you know, a love which is itself a perfectly good and acceptable thing leads people into trouble um, if their reaction to it is not quite right, if it is not um, kind of put in the proper priorities. And so I think that. Um, you can say, and we can see, I think pretty clearly that the, that the, the, the love of the Valar for the elves is a very good thing, but it, it still, it seems that they, you know, if we are going to make the argument that, the, that the Valar are here, or at least are now doing the first step of what is going to be a mistake, that is of their, of what seems like neglect of middle earth and neglect of, uh, paving the way for men. And, um, and a neglect of, you know, the rest of the elves and everything and healing those hurts of middle earth, which have yet to be healed. Um, you know, if, if they are acting inordinately toward the elves, um, that you know that that that's that is a kind of thing that happens all the time. We will see this happening um with Feanre. We will see this happening with many of the almost all of the good guys that we will see go bad um This is a big part of what's going on with them that is some natural good, wholesome desire is not just in itself becoming corrupted but is is becomes itself. Uh, sort of the avenue of temptation. Of course, we've already seen this with Aule, right? I mean, his desire to create things, um, and his desire to make things was put in his heart by Luvatar. It is a good thing. It is a good impulse. Um, but that good impulse is also one that leads him astray. So I think that that's, uh, that that's a really important thing uh, to keep in mind. And I think that this is why the thing that makes me feel most comfortable with the theory that the Valar are screwing up here, um, or rather that this is part of a larger picture of them screwing up, is exactly because it does seem to fit within that pattern. Let's see. Uh, Jordan, go ahead.
6: One more thing in the sort of general Valar screwing up thing. It strikes me odd that no one ever says to Mandos right after he says something like, now it is doomed. No one ever says like you couldn't have chimed in like ten minutes ago before we voted <laughs> to bring them here. Why is he incapable of predicting the doom before they've already acted?
0: Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. that's not his job. That's not his job. Well, no. see so, Well, first of all, the, the thing to keep in mind is that, uh, um, and this is something that um something that we'll see, espe especially later. I spent most most especially during the turin Bar story. But the word doom, um, the word doom means two different things. That is, it has its, the, its meaning, which it still retains, uh, in the modern world, which is like a horrible catastrophe. Um, like if something is doomed, that means like, it's like destined for failure and horrible destruction. Um, but of course the word doom also just meant a decision. Um, I would point out, let's see two, two examples of how it's used once in the modern sense and once in the pre-modern sense, um, in the Lord of the Rings is, um, in, uh, in the dream that Faramir and Boromir get that he, that Boromir reports to the council of Elrond, um, where, you know, says then shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. That's the modern sense of doom. Um, and that's how he interprets it. That's how he Boromir interprets it. You know, so, you know is then the doom of Minas Tirith at hand? Um, but it also, the word doom also means a decision. And Elrond uses the word in that sense in that same chapter in the Council of Elrond when he says, and I love this phrase because he uses the word in two different forms in the same sentence. Um, when When he's talking about that they have to decide what to do, he says, that is the doom that we must deem. In other words, this is the decision that we have to make. So when Mandos says, so it is doomed, what he appears literally to mean there is just, the decision has been made. Like, that's Mandos is like ringing the gavel on this discussion here. He's like, okay, like, you know, uh, the talk is over. This decision has been made. Um, It is doomed. So it is doomed. But of course, with him, there is also this sense of, uh, yeah, because. Remember from Mando's description, he knows he knows like everything that is known of the future too. So, you know, there's also the sense in which he's saying, uh, "Yep, uh-huh," uh, like that 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 is in fact what's going to happen. Like I've kind of known all along that that's what's going to happen. And so, like, yeah, Joe is that uh, or Jordan is that frustrating? Yes, that's a little frustrating. Sometimes you could wish that he. Um, that he might sort of speak up more. But remember, he speaks up as, you know, he only speaks when, when Manway tells him to. You know, his job is to sort of, to remember things, to foresee things. He is the doomsman of the Valar. Um, and he, he declares their dooms. When, Go ahead.
6: He also can speak up when he needs to make sarcastic comments, like, not the first.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, Mandos is... uh, uh <laughs> Uh, Mando's is definitely, uh, uh, I, 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 I love Mando's speeches, especially that one that you just quoted. Um, he does kind of seem like a smart aleck at times. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Joe, go ahead.
1: All right. Well, you guys kind of stole my thunder for the first one. Um, I was just going to ask about Mando's, uh, and kind of quote that one where he says Fayanor will see me soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask. If he, if he knows what's going to happen, period, or if it kind of comes to him as events follow. But I think you answered that. He just knows, period, what's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> then, uh...
0: not everything entirely. I mean, not absolutely everything does he know. Um, but, I mean, he, 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 he says he knows all things that shall be, save only those that lie still in the freedom of, of Iluvatar. So there are things that are going to happen as it were by chance, which he doesn't know are going to happen, um, but everything else he knows. Sorry, but go ahead.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, and also one more thing. Okay. I think it, it, this is like a possibility, but not. If Elmo might have known of the elves when they woke because they woke by a lake, right? And Olmo is you know, a part of all the waters in the lakes, it seems like it might have been kind of obvious, whoa, this strange thing just happened by the lake, and there's these weird things dancing around and singing that I've never noticed before. Um, so, I mean, it obviously seems like it might have made mention of that, but um, maybe not. I just thought that was interesting if you kind of look at it from that perspective.
0: No, I agree. It's a good question. I think it kind of comes back to the uh, uh, the point about Orome finding the Eldar as if by chance, because, uh, yeah, you'd think, had they been really systematic, that surely would have been the way to do it, right? Uh, Or have, uh, you know, Varda sit next to Manwe and have Manwe look out so that, you know, nothing is hidden from his eyes. Um, But instead, it was so arranged that they just kind of stumble upon them. Um, And, you know, it's another, it's kind of another thing that makes me feel more confident about the whole, like the question of the moral decision of the Valar here and that they might not be making the right decision because, um, you know, it's, this is a, situ- they, the Valar have been put by a Luvatar in this situation as well, where they come across them and they then have to decide what to do. Um, and you know, and maybe they'll screw it up and maybe they won't screw it up. So, um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, yeah, definitely, um, definitely an interesting, definitely an interesting point. Um, okay, let's see. Now we haven't talked about the Thingol and Melian chapter. This is the shortest chapter in the entire Quintus Silmarillion. So it's the only one where I've shoehorned it in with another chapter. Um, but I don't want the consequence of that being that we skip them entirely, um, what did you guys find interesting about Thingo and Melian? Yeah, Dave, go ahead and Dave, go ahead and bring that up about uh about guys falling in love. Sure. Um <laughs> we,
2: we I I I I got a lot of enjoyment out of reading this um chapter again after just having been steeped in in Tolkien for the past like I don't know, however long it is that I've been listening to your podcast. Um, But uh, just noticing the parallels between um, uh, Thingol and Melian, Baron and Luthien, Aragorn and Arwen. And what is it with, like, the men in Tolkien wandering through the forest, stumbling upon a beautiful woman, uh, falling instantly in love with her, and then, like, standing there holding her hand for God knows how long? (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's a very, it's a very uh, sort of amusing and funny, also very romantic picture of the way people fall in love. I, I can't help but I know you. I know you. You always warn us against this. I can't help but wonder if he's uh, putting some autobiographical information into this, or or at the very least inserting his experience or knowledge of love. But. But it's a very, very funny picture, <laughs> these guys just walking through the woods, stumbling upon a, a beautiful woman and just being completely dumbfounded and struck dumb by it.
0: But yeah. Then,
2: and the women are too, though e- even Arwen's when, – when Aragorn calls her – Luthien, uh, um, using Luthien's nickname, and and she says, "Well, that's that's not who I am, but maybe my fate will be, her, you know, my fate will be hers." And so, mm-hmm. even the even though the men are the ones that are, that are especially, you know, that are especially de- demonstrative in their in the spell that's cast on them, the women are the same way. It's sort of they're instantly committed in a way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and certainly, I mean, with uh, Luthien, we see her not instantly. Committed. I mean, she comes in, but there's, there's a slight delay, uh, in the narrative before she, before she places her hand in his. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it is hard here. And I think of, of all of the places, one of the only places where I don't resist uh, the biographical connection with Tolkien's life because he made it himself so many times. Um, you know, he pointed to this, that is specifically the scene of, of Luthien dancing before Baron and Baron falling in love with her. Um, you know, he referenced that many times as being inspired by, um, a very to him memorable moment with his, with his own wife, um, in the woods. And, you know, when they were out walking in the woods and she was dancing in the meadows and, um, and, uh, he, I mean, this is one, you know, among the reasons why he had the name Luthien carved on her tombstone. Um, so, I mean, he, he, and I think, you know, as you were sort of suggesting, I, I do feel kind of comfortable going one step further, um, in saying that I think that you can see this kind of This kind of awe and reverence, you know, the, the important men in Tolkien's world almost always marry up and, you know, the, the, the acceptance of them by the, by the women with whom they fall in love is like, you know, an act of, an inexplicable act of grace condescending to their lower estate. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it is kind of lovely and it's hard for me not to, uh, not to think that he is that 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 there's a certain amount of edith uh, of edith's fingerprints on that
2: well it's very i mean he's very he's obviously a romantic at heart he's he's really got this um this he he, he likes this idea of love at first sight and i don't know i don't know about you and i' and I would love to hear what other people have to say about this, but if I can go into autobiography a little bit uh, to, my girlfriend of, of currently five years, this was almost my experience with her too. <laughs> I, I sort of like, – the first time I ever saw her, she was on stage singing, and, and I sort of – I wouldn't say it didn't go exactly like this, but I certainly pursued her quite aggressively after
0: that. And, and, and you stood there transfixed for like 200 years and – yeah.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, and I, yeah. So I you know so I read this and I I even map my own feelings and experiences onto it. So I I don't know about other people, but I particularly enjoy it because of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. Uh, it is. It is certainly very evocative in that way, and it's one of the only times, I mean, we don't get, you know, there's just, there's not that much romance that happens in, in, in Tolkien's books. You know, we just don't see it that much, but we get these few glimpses. Um, you know, we, we get a lot of partnerships in Tolkien. That is, we see, you know, married couples working together and and, and, all, and that kind of thing, you know, like uh, Galadriel and Celeborn, for instance. You know, we see them you know as a team and as a unit but we don't um you know we don't but, but but there are very few romantic stories in the modern sense of the word uh uh in Tolkien but we do get these these flashes these glimpses of um of this you know, of this instantaneous uh falling in love uh jack go ahead
5: yeah was melian uh to use the word doom uh was she doomed to uh, be with the first elf that stumbled through her wood, because it seems to me that she could have done a lot better. I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe maybe we're just catching Thingle on bad days throughout the whole Silmarillion, but it seems to me he's just a
2: big jerk.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that's uh, yeah, she could have done better. Um, well, I think we we don't want to sell poor Thingle short. Um, he is. Uh, he is great. And of course we're told made greater by the fact that Million marries him. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, I, 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 I don't want to downplay him too much, but, um, but yeah, the description of it from her perspective, um, that is when she, her going to Middle Earth, um. In that time when the Quendi awoke beside the waters of Quivianen, she departed from Valinor and came to the Hitherlands, and there she filled the silence of Middle-earth before the dawn with her voice, and the voices of her birds. So we see her doing some of the work, in a sense, that we were kind of wanting to see the Valar doing, that is going to Middle-earth and, and helping to uh, uh, helping to hew it, because uh, she's one of the people of Lorien, um, of Irmo, so that's what she does. You know, she's, she's part of the, you know, the team of the, the, the resters and healers over there. Um, And uh, straightway, a spell was laid on him. See, the, 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 the wording is so interesting there. Um, He sees her and falls in love with her and sort of, you know, Jack, as you would suggest, that doesn't seem very surprising, right? I mean, like she's, completely devastating uh, in all ways she spoke no word but being filled with love elway came to her and took her hand and straightway a spell was laid on him so that they stood thus while long years were measured um and a spell was laid on him by whom by her it seems um so you know was it was it her was she doomed whose doom was it i mean did she make that decision um you know i i it's it is a little bit unclear, though. I think it's kind of interesting that we get this thinking of the context of the conversation that we were just having about the love of the Valar for the elves. Um, he does seem to be the first elf that she has met and she does seem to have, uh, uh, and she does seem to have fallen in love with him, um, now, of course, her love for Thingol is a little bit different from the love of the Valar for the Elves, but I'm not sure it's entirely other. I mean, there is a way in which you can you can see Melian's relationship with Thingol as a kind of as a kind of parallel to, as a kind of almost an emblem of uh the overall love, the overall relationship of the of the Valar with the Ainur. In in these two, they are joined, they are united. Um And you think about the joining and the uniting that we talked about among the Valar, too, with the Valar couples that we see and what that means um, and what that kind of amounts to. And here we see the actual union of these two. Um, Let's see. uh, Mike, you wanted to add something to that? Yeah, I just
3: was struck by the fact that the language that describes the... uh, love between them where the stars wheel overhead and then sort of an unknown passage of time flows by while they're sort of locked in this spell kind of reminded me of the language that tolkien uses after gandalf gets killed by the balrog and he also sees the stars wheel overhead and then some amount of time that we don't know about passes by and then he gets sent back to finish some job so i just interesting the wording seemed uh, evocative and echoed those two things from.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that that sense of being sort of lifted out of all mortal concerns. Um, and, and with Elway, it's sort of particularly interesting. I mean, what he was doing. Remember, he was of all of this, of all of the Teleri. He was the one who was most motivated to go back. He was the one who was sent as the ambassador, and so he had. He's the only of the only one of the Teleri so far who has seen Valinor, and he's really excited about it. And not only is he stirring the Teleri on to get him move on uh, because he wants to go back to Valinor, but also he's the one who's really close friends with Finway and the Noldor are, are way ahead of the Teleri at this point, so he re- really wants to go and catch up with them. So he's all gung-ho about this um, and then he is sort of taken out of these of these concerns. So you get this sort of good thing that he was in the middle of and this really really much more unpleasant thing that gandalf was in the middle of that is being killed by a balrog um and uh and sort of just the struggles in middle earth in general but then but yeah in that moment when both of them are kind of transported out of of you know the 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 time structure of middle earth we get that same kind of description i think that that's an interesting uh I th- I think that that's an interesting kind of connection. Um, let's see. Brandon, you had a courtship question?
5: Okay. Um, I was just wondering as a – you've studied, you know, medieval literature and so on, and I just I just can't help thinking about kind of the troubadour literature and just kind of their tradition of, uh, of love at first sight and how they kind of invented romance. And I, I wonder if Tolkien was kind of thinking – along those sort of lines in this short chapter here. And uh, that's all. If you can hear me, I don't know. I'll try my mic
0: later. No, good. Yes, I I, I, I could hear you. Um, but, um, yeah, I, it's tricky because certainly this concept of love does seem to be connected with sort of the, the great courtly love tradition through the Middle Ages. But I have to say that... Um, there's a major difference between what Tolkien is describing and certainly what the troubadours were doing one of the one of the the things about the actual medieval troubadours their love poetry was very sort of stylized that is one way to say it very crudely is that their love poetry was at least as much about poetry as it was about love um in fact many of them were sort of showpieces um and it's really not clear to me how serious people were about the whole love thing for really quite a while. Um, That is, at the time, it all seemed to be rather a bit of a game. Um, And I think it's interesting how little love poetry we get in Tolkien. Um, He almost never writes love poetry. Um, We will get one love poem in The Silmarillion, and that will be interesting. Um, Baron will sing a love poem. But we don't really... um, (sighs) what happens here is in some ways actually exactly opposite to what a troubadour would do. That is, if a troubadour were stricken with love for his lady, he would immediately go and write volumes and volumes and volumes, of very, very cunning poetry about it. Um, whereas what Fingal does is stand completely silent and transfixed for years. Um, so, uh, so in that way, it's, I think, very different. And I think it's one of the things that he was doing. In Tolkien, we see this is almost, uh, I mean, this is like a spiritual thing. I mean, uh, the, the sort of the immediate bond and the immediate connection between them really sort of transcends the physical world. Um, whereas in more traditional love poetry, it's, first of all, um, uh, it's first of all the, i mean that is the 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 love poetry also i mean traditional courtly love poetry was also very racy uh there's this modern idea that medieval courtly love was was all very chaste and platonic which is absolutely not the case uh they were all extremely interested in uh convincing deceiving or manipulating their beloveds into agreeing to go to bed with them so um so you know, we see certainly not <laughs> not any of that, uh, in Tolkien, but um but also just mostly it's not even being translated into words at all. Um, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, um Mike, you have asked a a a a simple question a couple of times which I haven't gotten around to uh, answering. Lomalindi is an untranslated uh, Elvish word that he uses in the middle of the description there. Um, Then an enchantment fell on him and he stood still and afar off beyond the voices of the Lomalindi. He heard the voice of Melian and it filled all his heart with wonder and desire. The Lomalindi are the nightingales that follow her. Um, The word literally means like, uh, dusk singers. Um, and, uh, um, so yeah, it's, and remember, she teaches the nightingales their song. Um, so this presumably is, is part of her part of the great music, you know, just as um, Manway and Yovana talk about, uh, you know, the the parts of the song where their voices joined together and they, and they conceived the eagles. So, uh, so here, Melian conceived the nightingales, you know, and, and, their song is a reflection of her song because she taught them to sing. So we get this sense of like, you know, the shadow of Melian singing can still be heard in the nightingales. Um, you know, and this is sort of a very, a very, uh, a very mythic idea that, that sounds, um, very like almost, almost Greek, uh, you know, and it's of course the Greek, the Greek story of the nightingales is quite different and, uh, I don't even want to go there, but, but anyway, um, it's, 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 we can see that connection and how they are, you know, the night, the nightingales are like the offspring of her thought. Um, at least their song is, is derivative of her song. Um, and I think it's interesting and significant. Again, we thinking back to conversations we had about the relationships between the Valar and the Maiar. Meligan is a very powerful being and we can see this by her song. Um, you know, there were none more beautiful than Melian among all Lorien's people, nor more wise, nor more skilled in songs of enchantment. It is told that the Valar would leave their works, and that and the birds of Valinor their mirth, that the bells of Valmar were silent and the fountains ceased to flow, when at the mingling of the lights Melian sung, sang in Lorian. Um. Now, here's a quiz: Who does this sound like? Who should we be thinking of? Anybody? The fountains cease to flow when she sings. There is a mythological character that we should be remembering. Not from Tolkien. Think Greek mythology. No, no, getting guesses. Jordan is protesting in text that he tries not to compare to other mythologies uh, when he's reading this. And, you know, and that's a... I can certainly sympathize with that in that you certainly you don't want to start identifying, you know, as I said way back when. I mean, if you if you're reading about Omo and you start thinking about Poseidon, you're going to you're going to start going astray pretty quickly because they're not the same characters. So that is certainly right. But there is an echo here. Um, and I think the echo, uh, the specific the specific echo here, I think, is to. Uh, is to Orpheus. Um, That's what I... Anyway, I think there's an echo of Orpheus here. Orpheus, the greatest musician of all time, um, because it is... Described in a couple places that when Orpheus sang, um, the birds would stop singing and the animals would come uh, would come up to him, and that the trees would listen and that the rivers would stop flowing so that they could so that they could uh, hear him. Um, the business about the fountain stopping, like okay, it's one thing. All right, the birds stop. All right, that's kind of interesting. You know, everyone is quiet. Well, that's just polite. The bells in Valmar stop ringing. Well, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And again, only polite. Um, but the fountain stopping, the the, the water ceasing to flow so that it can hear her is the one that really makes me think of Orpheus. Um, And, of course, I think that this is not an accident. Um, The reason I feel pretty confident that um, thinking of Orpheus here is not a bad idea is that, of course, Luthien and Beren, their story is very much tied up with the Orpheus story story. the story of Orpheus who goes to the land of the dead to go and fetch his dead beloved back. Um, so her daughter Luthian, who looks and sings a heck of a lot like she does, uh, is going to be, uh, even more sort of, uh, in, in intrinsically connected with the Orpheus story. So I think that that's kind of an interesting point. It's actually something I just noticed that this past reading, um, just earlier today when I was rereading the chapter again, um, that was one of the things that really jumped out at me this time that I'd never really noticed before. Um, any other sort of thoughts or questions about Thingo and Melian? Other things? Any other last final questions about anything? We're getting towards uh, stopping time here, but let's see. Uh, yeah, Brandon, go ahead.
5: am going to try again. Um just had a question uh, about the kind of metafictional framework for the the actual book that we're holding in our hands, if it's from the elves, if, if it's tales from the elves, wouldn't it be in the elvish language? Um, these are, Isn't this not Bilbo's translations of the elves, um, of the elvish tales? So, I mean, I don't know what exactly the metafictional framework is for this Cimmerillion. Um, so I'm just wanting to hear maybe if you knew anything, what your guess is on that. Um, yeah
0: yeah no definitely as you say um the thing in and... Christopher Tolkien admits in the introduction to the first volume of the History of Middle-Earth series that he thinks he screwed it up, that when he published The Silmarillion, he should have gone ahead and done what he was like 98% sure was what his dad had in mind, but like he wasn't a hundred percent sure. And so he didn't do it and kind of felt like he had sort of wimped out and really should have, which is that, that this book, The Silmarillion is, the book that uh the, the volumes that Bilbo gives to Frodo translations from the Elvish by BB. Um, so we definitely have, um, the, 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 the theory of the frame of the book is that this is the book that Bilbo has translated based upon all of the sources that he could get, the written sources that he found in Rivendell plus this plus the living sources that he could get, um, in Rivendell. So, uh, so anyway, um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely the frame though. I mean, the frame is a really interesting point because he had written several other frames, um, in the earlier versions, certainly in the book of lost tales stuff. It's, uh, he had written this elaborate frame story about this human guy who travels and ends up in, uh, in Elven and is told the stories over there. And you get this whole sort of plot of what's happening with this wanderer, uh, named Ariel over there. Um, you get this other story later on about like this Anglo-Saxon dude, um, who, who ends up, you know, going to Valinor to, or to Elvenholm also and hearing these. Um, so, I mean, he, he had several different frame tales, which he had essentially abandoned. Um, but in the end, it sounded like really this was intended to be uh, the Hobbit's version of Theo. So so it gives us sort of uh, one more excuse to, uh, to be clueless about things, right? It's not just that the elves themselves didn't understand everything. But Bilbo might not have understood perfectly well everything that the elves told him. So,
4: uh,
0: yeah, uh, Jason, go ahead.
4: Yeah, in case anyone was interested, earlier in the session, Laura had uh, asked a question about that passage where it says uh, in the beginning the elder children of Iluvatar were stronger and greater than they have since become and I did find that uh, passage uh, about the elves' spirit Uh, it took me a while because it's actually in the chapter of men which is the last place I would have thought to look for it but (laughs) it states uh, about two pages into that chapter uh, immortal were the elves and their wisdom waxed from age to age and no sickness nor pestilence brought death to them Their bodies indeed were of the stuff of earth and could be destroyed, and in those days they were more like to the bodies of men, since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumes them from within in the courses of time. Uh, I think it's really interesting that he includes that, but doesn't develop it quite as much as some of us might like.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It uh, It is interesting, and you also notice what he has left the door open for which is the idea that fairies might in fact get small over time, that in this time they were still like the children of men. Um, But he's not ruling out the fact, even though he was very outspoken about the fact that he, he despised the little, uh, little Victorian fairies of teacups and bluebells. um, He, he does leave open that possibility. And in his early writings, it's clear that he does conceive. Um, he does write some poems about tiny little, um, you know, those those the way in which he later on describes, you know, in on fairy stories as these nauseating little uh little cowslip fairies. Um but but he does he does leave that door open that it is possible that later on they will diminish in stature, uh quite literally. Uh you know, so that as their fire of their spirit burns, um, you know, that their their physical frame will will diminish. Um and yeah, we will get something which perhaps might look more Tinkerbell-ish, um, but he, uh, I, he, he, he kind of was distancing himself from that more and more as time went on, but it was definitely not totally alien to his initial conception. Um, despite his protestations and on fairy stories, um, Dave, you had something else you wanted to, something else you wanted to say? Um,
2: (laughs) no, not really. I was just, Jumping on because I never want it to end. I just want class to go on
0: and on. <laughs> Understood. And, um,
2: I don't know. I, I was trying to think deep thoughts about what uh, – about the quote that Jason Jason brought forth for us. But um, I know I I What's in – I guess my one question is maybe I misinterpreted it, but the first time that he just – well, when he just read it now and I was thinking about it. I interpreted that to – that their bodies were – I mean, uh, maybe I need to read it again, but I interpret it to sound like their bodies were more like men's early on, and that the longer that their um, um, uh, that their spirits inhabited them, they became less like men. And 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 you guys, you were just discussing it as they were diminishing, maybe in stature or power or something. But I was thinking more along the lines of that they became more, I don't know, less, more ethereal, less in the physical, more in the spirit. They, you know. Remember later on, Frodo, they see uh, in Lord of the Rings, they see Glorfindel in, you know, revealed sort of in all of his wrath. And Frodo sees him as he is, as he sort of inhabits the spirit world. But maybe I'm just totally misinterpreting it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is, of course, another possibility that we can see them not just as like remaining physical, but getting, you know, smaller and lesser. Um, but also of, of becoming themselves more... Um, to, to have a less, less firm of a foothold in the physical realm entirely. Um, that seems, possible, At heart, that seems to be, well, well I mean, that's a different thing. And never mind. I'll talk about that later. I was thinking about when they, when we see them waste in grief, uh, and thereby lose their connection to the, to the physical world. But as I said, we'll, 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 we'll come back to that as I will come back to dead elves. The first time we see a dead elf. Um, so that's, uh, Um, we'll sort of save that, but, but no, I mean, I do think that that is, that that is perfectly, that that is perfectly plausible. Um, and it's not really clear. It's again, it's another thing that Tolkien doesn't really explain what exactly does the fading look like? What exactly is going to be the end result of it? Um, there are lots of, there are lots of possibilities. Um, okay. Well, I think, I think that about wraps us up for tonight. Uh, we will um, we will convene again next week for uh, yes, for of uh, Eldemar and the princes of the Eldalia. So uh, so that'll be good, and we'll get lots more uh, fun second guessing of choices that get to go on there. So thanks, you guys, and uh, I'll see you guys again next week. Okay, stay tuned for more Silmarillion Seminar episodes as I slowly get us caught up to the present. Stay tuned for a new installment of the Fairy and Fantasy class later this week as well. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.